Welcome to another edition of the Work Life Hub podcast. To find out more and to listen to other episodes, please go to www.worklifehub.eu. Welcome to our listeners to this uh, new edition of the Work Life Hub podcast. I'm very excited and honored to be joining Linda Holbeach. Um, she just wrote a book that is going to be out on the 9th of June. It's called The Agile Organization, How to Build an Innovative, Sustainable and Resilient Business. Linda, currently the co-director of the Whole Beach Partnership, which is a research-based development consultancy. Previously, she held, uh, among others, the positions of research and policy director at the CIPD and also director of leadership and consultancy at the Work Foundation. She is an author of quite a number of books and articles and also professor at a number of universities. So I'm very honored and pleased to be saying hello to Linda. Thank you very much, Agnes, and uh, very pleased to be with you. So we could, I think, record a three-hour podcast, but um, now let's focus on the book. And I was very intrigued uh, about the approach you took and that you framed it in Agile, because we know Agile a little bit is going around, mostly coming from an IT uh, base and then also now creeping more and more into HR and organizational development. So if you could just explain to us how you got to Agile and the link to HR and organizational development to start with. Yes, although it's been quite a journey really because um, I've been researching issues to do with uh, people's experience of the workplace um, across Europe for probably 20 years and I've noticed over that time the pace of change appears to have got faster and faster and at the same time um, people have uh, been experiencing heavier workloads, more pressured environments and while some people can thrive in such situations, not everybody can. So I've been um, looking with interest at um, organizations recognizing that to be competitive and to sustain their advantage, they have to do things a bit faster, keep ahead of the competition and organize their resources more effectively. Um, but so often the way they go about it seems to do the very opposite of what they're aiming to do. So they change in a way that actually undermines people's will to do what needs to be done. Um, they destroy the goodwill on which so much extra effort depends. Um, and, you know, whilst on the one hand uh, there is a logic to what, what organisations are trying to do when aiming to be more agile, they want to become more flexible, they want to save money, they want to innovate, they want to work effectively across national boundaries. Many global organisations, for instance, are working 24-7 across national boundaries uh, within one company and increasingly between partner companies. Um, but all of those, those um, intentions have an impact on the people who are delivering the work. So I've been interested progressively more and more in the last few years in how can organizations achieve what they probably do need to achieve because there are endless examples of companies that don't move fast enough but go out of business. Um, but at the same time, how can they achieve agility without destroying employee goodwill, employee health and well-being um, and in fact, the basis of innovation, uh, which 
is fundamentally based on people being willing to give their best ideas to the organization. So it's that, how can organizations square the circle that has got me intrigued, and that's why, more specifically, in the last three or four years, I've been looking at organizations um, that appear to be doing slightly better than others on this, um, what it is that they've been doing that seems to allow them to have the both and, you know, both be more flexible, but at the same time keep people engaged and productive. And um, and also what not to do. So that's what I've been writing about in, in the book. I also read one of the sentences and one of the very important key statements when you say that if agile or if the thrive for agility is only a cost-saving exercise, it won't work um, because it needs to be linked with the different values that you just mentioned. Um, so when you went uh, and looked at the more mm. successful examples, was it depended on, on a CEO's goodwill or the real understanding of the shareholders or what was really driving this process of, of becoming an agile organization? Well, in, I have to say that in all the organizations I've looked at, there are very, very few that I would say would tick all the boxes on Agile. But having said that, I can think of one financial services organization in the UK, for example. I won't name them because uh, it wouldn't be appropriate to do so. They are um, a fairly traditional organization. Um, they survived the economic, the financial crisis well because they were not guilty of unethical practice mm -hmm. um, and um, they had a new CEO a few years ago who has made an incredible difference to the organization because he got the management team thinking and the shareholders thinking about the kinds of challenges to the business model that the organization has uh, recognizing that digital is going to change what people do you know so this was a an institution that barely did um, online banking um, by getting people, not just the shareholders and the um, management team thinking, but more widely involving staff in a way educating them about some of the changes, but getting the staff thinking about the changes and sharing their ideas. He's ended up with a really dynamic organization that has more than one business model running without causing massive confusion. So they've got their old business model running alongside the new models that are being tested and delivered uh, progressively. So it's managed in a way that you've got innovation running alongside the tried and tested, which is gradually being phased out as it becomes less relevant. And in that case, it was a combination of a CEO with vision, with confidence, with the willingness to take a few risks and the ability to bring people with him and to put a process around um, managing this shift in thinking um, that meant that whereas you can typically in management teams get lots of dissent and lots of game playing, the game playing was kept to a minimum and dealt with so in some cases it's like that you know that you have you have a very visionary person who can make change happen in that way but in other cases it's it's sort of growing up into the culture of the organization so another one is wl gore the american manufacturer of um various fabrics that uh, are known to um waterproofing and so on and gore has um a, a a very unusual 
uh, by today's standards, um, structure and culture, uh, which has been going for about 50, 60 years. It's essentially a very flat structure. Um, people don't have job titles, and there aren't even really many senior leadership roles. Um, and those that do exist, staff have the opportunity to choose who gets to be in a senior leadership role. So if the staff don't believe the leader has credibility, they're no longer a leader. Um, mm -hmm. But they do have a series of processes which allow staff to, again, be informed, have voice, innovate, see as their responsibility to, to do things well, to work with them teams across the organization to keep in touch with customers, to use that feedback in an intelligent way to build new products and services. Um, so as I say, in that case, it's not down to an individual leader, it's into the way, the way we do things around here. Um, and, you know, in the UK, we have a well-known retailer called John Lewis Partnership, um, which again, that is a business entity which is uh, technically owned by its employees who are called partners. This was thanks to um, nearly a century ago, the then owner of the company deciding that he was rich enough and really it was fairer to share some of the profit of the company around. So he um, developed that um, ownership model, shared ownership model, which is translated into a um, a real partnership mentality within the firm so that, again, teams tend to grow their, each other and their skills. They tend to make things happen. They hold management to account um, and management expects to be held to account. So it's a very grown-up business model. It's not an adversarial uh, organized employees versus ma management and vice versa. It's much more um, healthy collaboration and contention to get the right thing for the company. Now that is, as I say, it's a specific business entity and very few organizations can be like that. But there are germs of those ways of operating which I think could work more regularly um, elsewhere. Issues such as having flatter structures, having smarter processes, having ways of um, internalizing procedures around how we develop ideas from a, an, an initial idea to a, a stage where it can be tested for market readiness and so on, um, what I call disciplined innovation, if you like. There are lots of ideas like that that um, I think other organizations can adopt. And you're right, for most people, when they think agility, they're thinking of uh, tools and techniques that do come from software development like agile project management, agile problem analysis, and also total quality management like lean processes. But what I'm talking about is much more of a, a culture, a way of thinking about running a business, a way of anticipating problems, learning from mistakes as well, um, having the courage of convictions, um, you know, having the willingness of, of senior management to embrace the workforce in the shared endeavor and not just sort of hand down strategy to those who must deliver it, um, which as we know in most organizations there tends to be typically a gap between the grand strategic plan and what really happens. Whereas in an agile organization, that gap is minimal because people tend to be involved in helping devise 
um, at least the how of the strategy, if not the what and the why of strategy. Yes, and then I guess resistance is also much lower because they do, they have been involved from the get-go, they're on board, they um, have ownership, they understand why this needs to happen and that alone makes them you know, less resistant to, to the changes that need to be happen, which are sometimes painful. I mean, we have to acknowledge, but then ultimately lead to this uh, more sustainable, more innovative and, and more agile organization. Yes, absolutely. I think, as you say, there does tend to be less conflict, but it's not cozy. I mean, I think speaking theory for a moment, you know, if you look at complexity theory, um, you know, they're the healthiest state, if you like, of an organization that is able to move forward, to seize ideas, act on ideas, um, you know, make things happen. The healthiest state is at the edge of chaos. Um, that doesn't mean in chaos, and it doesn't mean in stagnation either, but it's, it's a slightly not always comfortable place because people are sort of looking for new ways of doing things. They may be arguing, they may be, you know, debating ideas, uh, and but, but at the same time, there comes a point with, to move away from chaos itself to something more productive. You need processes for saying, okay, well, this is now what we're going to do. And as you said, when people have been involved from the get-go, when they have a chance to have their ideas filtered into the pot, um, there's much more likelihood that when the decision's taken, this is what we're going to do, they're more likely to implement it well than if it's just handed down uh, like a pillar of stone and just get on and do it. Now, I, I thought it was very interesting that the specific examples you mentioned were from quite different sectors. And I think one of, for me, one of the key messages in your book is that organizations of every sector and every industry are under pressure so no one is safe and then i also think the flip flip of this message is that any kind of organization can become an agile organization no matter the size no matter the industry so i just wanted to ask you a little bit about these big shifts and driving forces that you see that are driving and pushing for the change or at least the need for change you know, there, there are several, so I'll try and um, keep it relatively brief. Um, you know, obviously one of the issues is that um, over the last 30 years or so, the form of globalization we have now is, um, is one that is underpinned by advanced technologies. Um, and it means that there are many new forms of industry being created it's a technology base that didn't even exist uh, a few years ago. You know, types of work like digital marketing, for instance, didn't exist 10 years ago, probably. Um, so you can get competitors emerging, big and small, um, in all fields across the globe. And um, as I say, technology is also driving the pace of um, competition because whatever you produce by way of products today is likely to be superseded by someone else doing something better than you tomorrow um, using slightly better technology. So inevitably things are going faster and as a, in a sense obsolesce, things are obsolete almost before they are on the market, um, in the market. 
Um, I think there are also some other big shifts that are taking place, um, you know, one of which is uh, the demographic shift, of course, which, uh, you know, could be broadly summarized as um, the developed economies of mostly the West are mostly getting older. Um, the, uh, the, the developing or still developing economies tend to tend to be, by and large, the average age is much younger than, than in the West. Um, you tend to get much more fluid movements across um, country boundaries, um, much more in the way of cross-cultural um, uh, uh, operating in global companies. Um, so this melting pot of ideas, backgrounds, expectations and marketplaces means that um, whatever you're doing, wherever you are, if you're not proactive and building new marketplaces for new to you customers, other people will. Um, and I think there's also, you know, no doubt that um, people expect different things both from uh, suppliers and from employers. So, whereas, you know, if you think of generational shifts, the good old baby boomers of the post-war period with their supposed work ethic, most of those are now hitting retirement age um, and will gradually be replaced by Generation Y who've grown up as digital natives. Um, they expect to be communicated with um, very quickly um, in a much more personal, very two-way kind of thing because they've grown up with social media. They are connected. Um, so the kinds of ways in which organizations tend to operate, you know, with formalized employee relations and formalized employee communications and, you know, a monthly newsletter or whatever, that's ridiculous these days. Nobody, you know, people know what's going on through their own networks and organizations, in a sense, have to recognize these shifts and have to respond to them if they're going to be able to attract the kinds of people they need to to run their business. And as I said, you know, there are obviously still massive manufacturing uh, businesses in different parts of the world, but certainly in the West, by and large, there is a shift more broadly that's taken place in the last 20, 30 years towards more knowledge and service-based economies. And so, you know, there it's people and their brain cells or their personal manners when providing service um, that are the make or break of businesses. And it does mean that human resource practices, people management practices have to evolve rapidly, taking into account some of these shifts I've just mentioned. Um, if they're going to attract and hang on to the kinds of people that they will need to keep them ahead in a in a very crowded and uh, fast-changing marketplace. I Just when you were talking, something occurred to me is that member states and the UN member states have adopted, you know, it's, it's now the 25th anniversary of the United Nations Conventions on the Rights of the Child, which is about children's participation, their opinions, their you know consultation, their own choice, their own decisions. So it's somehow we don't making these links between um, this democratization that's happening or happened in the last 20, 30, 40 years in the families where children are much more listened to and 
companies have understood this because they're marketing to the children directly. So children become the pester power in the families, in the households. They have their own decisions. But this is the generation that then comes to the workplace. So this kind of new consumer is the new employee. And so somehow we haven't quite made this shift yet to this uh, empowered uh, people who come into the workplace who want to know why certain decisions are taken, who want to get their ideas across, who want to speak even in board meetings or boardrooms, even if we would, in a traditional sense, not think that that's their place. Am I correct in this line of thought? Absolutely. I think the um, you know what you just outlined is very much one of the driving forces for change in terms of uh, workplace organization and operation um, because as you say new consumers are often of that generation this generation y or millennials or the net generation there are many names for them um, if they are the lucky ones and are in um, economies where they can more easily get jobs um, they tend to as you say um, they've been brought up by parents who've listened to them mostly, who've given them lots of positive encouragement, um, built them up. So they tend to be superficially more confident than perhaps previous generations. They do expect to be listened to in the the workplace. They do expect their, I mean, I've heard even that, you know, supervisors uh, are expected to be like a workplace parent, you know, giving the same kind of, reinforcement and encouragement that parents for real did um, and it does mean that they can you know that there are lots of little studies that suggest that there is a little bit of intergenerational conflict about this because of course these these younger people in the workplace these younger generations rather tend to expect rapid promotion if they want promotion or at least progression of some sort uh, and are prepared to, to, you know, hang around waiting and they will move on if they can't satisfy their needs, in particular for work-life balance. Because one of the things they noticed about their own parents was that their parents were hardly ever around. You know, they were working too hard. So there is something about, um, you know, in this, this generation now that it's coming of age or has come of age in the workplace um, is pushing for a different style of management and organizations that need these bright young people um, are encouraging managers to approach the whole challenge of managing managing them in a different way from in the past. So it's much more about coaching, lots of feedback, lots of encouragement, uh, challenging jobs, challenging projects, using their um, technology abilities um, to the full, you know, really expanding their horizons and so on. Um, and yes, there are big companies that also use these young people's prowess in technology to turn them into um, upward mentors, you know, mentoring the top team on um, how to connect better with the staff and so on, you know. So um, they are in themselves one of the drivers for difference in the workplace that cannot be ignored because they will be uh, the biggest generation in the workplace in terms of numbers across the world within a matter of four or five years. So they will be the majority generation, um, more so than the, the, um, their, their predecessor, Generation X. 
Um, so poor old Generation X will have the challenge of managing Generation Y, and Generation Y itself will be managing those that follow. So um, something's going to change, whether we like it or not. Uh, but hopefully, um, and where I think agility is particularly relevant, agility for me isn't just about trying to go for speed and efficiency. It's also about being proactive, anticipating what might happen, getting things in place, making decisions more quickly, not attempting to get it 100% right each time, therefore not needing tons of data before any decision is taken, but having the ability to learn, if you don't get it right, from what went wrong, not in a punitive way, but in a way that allows the organization to recover and get more what is now thought of as transient advantages, because in this, the nature of the marketplace as it is today, the notion of sustainable competitive advantage is a bit nonsensical. There are very few organizations that can claim they've cracked it and it's their thing that will last forever, because nothing does. Instead, Rita Guntur-McGrath talks about transient advantages, and I think she is right that you need the constant experimentation, producing two or three at any one time new ideas that you can try out that may or may not for a time give you some advantage in the marketplace while you've got other things coming behind. So it's a big cultural shift that actually plays very well to the ways of working of people like Generation Y who've got sort of like split screen attention supposedly. But um, at the same time, it's a real challenge for um, older managers, particularly, who've come through a different way of thinking, who've been developed in business schools to think in rational, logical, linear ways, and who want all the possible evidence they can muster before they make any decisions. And of course, if you're anticipating you cannot always have evidence before it's been created. And if you wait too long, you miss the boat. Yes, because, I mean, if, if you look at some of the 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 um, unicorns and some of these uh, companies that are doing so well, um, you know, even Twitter or or um, Angry Birds or YouTube, you know, um, if, if someone would have pitched to us these um, ideas that we're going to be watching, videos of someone unwrapping a kinder surprise egg you know which is one of the (laughs) most watched videos you would have thought no you're crazy forget this so i think what you just said is is what we were perhaps used to this whole idea of sequencing of you know this comes first and then this and then this is is out the window because we have to push everything at the same time in parallel and i think also the this shift in the culture around accepting if not celebrating failure or mistakes because you yes. know done is better than perfect this is not me who says it but Sheryl Sandberg but I agree with her on this that that you know you just have to come out with it and and it's your consumers that are going to test it for you you're not going to test it in some kind of dark laboratory in a basement but and then think I have the best product and come out when there's already a hundred out there but you just test it on the customers and and involve them in this two-way communication of so what do you think about our product that's that's absolutely true, and that's where, going back to one of the questions you asked earlier about you know people thinking of it as something that comes from software development, in one small way at least, 
those techniques from software development, such as agile project management, the disciplines imply exactly what you were saying, that customers are involved, not just at the very end when you've bought out a, a new product and say now, hope you like it, uh, which used to be the case, um, you know, where you've had, particularly on large new products like a car development or whatever, and it could take two years to develop it from concept to road testing. Um, and then if clients didn't, the customers didn't like it, that was unfortunate. Now, these project management techniques that are more agile break things down into smaller chunks, you know, called iterations, which in turn are broken down into smaller um, sprints that are quite short term, where the customer is involved in reviewing with the project team at all stages of the development of a product so that it may start life looking like X, but by the time it's ready to hit the market, it looks very different and it's already been tested and it's ready to hit the marketplace in shorter time than developing in isolation and then testing. And I think there's a lot to those methods that require a lot of team working, um, willingness to share information, be very open, uh, non-judgmental but very frank, uh, being open to feedback, review, applying the learning, doing something differently and doing things in a timely way so that you're responsible to the team to deliver. Um, not just go off into a dark, li a cork-lined room and produce something, your magnum opus in three years' time. Um, I think those kinds of ways of working, um, as a as a as a disciplined principle, if you like, are more likely to help organisations on a day-to-day -day operational basis um, prove more um, nimble at least, if not agile. Um, and you could argue that HR as a function, in particular, uh, would benefit, uh, as well as, as um, their clients in the workplace, if they role model some of the use of some of these principles, because um, we know so many, I'm sure, examples of where the perfect performance management system that was ever invented, nevertheless, nosedives because actually nobody wants to use it when it's finally developed. So I think HR in particular could be role modeling some of these, these ways of working. Um, I, I was but, just about, actually, this would have been actually my next question because you wrote uh, another book previously on HR leadership and you have a lot of experience in this. And that's what I just was actually waiting to ask you, where you see the role of HR uh, in these new ways of, of companies working? Well, I think potentially HR, this could be their finest hour. Ah, good news. <laughs> you know, because the, the agenda is so huge um, that if HR was to make a difference on just a fraction of it, it would be great. The risk is that HR doesn't feel able to rise to the challenge mm. and that would be a great pity but if there were some of the ways in which I think HR could make a big difference is to say okay where are some of the ways in which we collectively operate um, that slow things down you know is it to do with our structures or our meetings processes, our governance processes, is it to do with our collective lack of confidence and blame cultures or whatever, you know, 
to just look at how we operate and what gets in the way. And then I think it's very much, um, as I was just saying before, I don't think it should be HR doing this in isolation. I think they should engage other key players, line managers and so others in doing that, that sort of assessment exercise, that initial looking at how do we operate and what 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 gets in our way. Because I think if you then put that against the strategic appetite, if you're trying to get faster or innovate more or have more team working, I think it's then easier to say, well, it's not just about putting on a team building program or whatever. It's more about how do we um, help teams to um, gel across their functional boundaries? How do we how do we um, break down the silos? It, no, break down the silos. Improve the day-to-day communication between teams. Um, the reporting processes. You know, how can we in HR as well? simplify our own processes such that they are more consistently helpful to people and accurate and uh, people can help themselves you know because all of this should be much more about not HR doing everything for everybody but very much about helping people to help themselves by having something solid and well thought through but simple and effective for people to access most particularly I think HR could help if they recognize that whatever the main issues are, it's quite likely that some mindset shifts are going to need to be made, you know, and it's most likely that a lot of that shifting needs to happen in senior management. Because, uh, of course, in many organizations, senior management are very, very capable, but they got to where they are under a different mode of operation from that of an agile organization typically. Um, so I think working with top leaders, working with senior management, helping them, whether it's using scenario planning, um, organizing um, uh, collective events in which staff and, and, and senior management can talk about some of the challenges facing the organization and start to put a, a framework around um, how do we do things a bit differently that will help us um, address some of these challenges. HR could, uh, with a, just a few simple techniques, mostly drawn from organization development, make a big difference in getting the ball rolling. But I don't think HR is by any means solely responsible for these things, of course. But as I said, this is an opportunity for HR to exercise some leadership if they've got the desire to do so. Um, and, you know, I think it's, it's about, yes, even if you see yourself as a service function, you can provide a great service by being proactive um, and doing things smarter, better, faster yourselves in a way that um, frees up capacity in the organization. Well, this takes us to our last question that we traditionally always ask the same question to all of our um, podcast guests. So I would like to know from you, Linda, if you could give now just one advice for um, a CEO uh, in a company to make a transformation or to make a change in the life uh, of his or her employees, make the organization a bit more agile, what would that first or more, most important advice be? I guess it's uh, to not worry 
too much about taking some risks around your own ego. <laughs> By that I mean... I love not, this. <laughs> not having to have all the answers and being brave enough to show that with your employees. Of course, in some cultures, there'd be a huge loss of face if the CEO stands up and says, well, I don't have all the answers here. But nevertheless, I think if you're going to unlock other people's uh, willingness to produce some ideas and to take some responsibility and to show that it's okay not to be perfect and therefore more willing to take risks, then the CEO really does need to lead the way on that. So leading the way, I mean, in the current popular way of thinking about it by being humble and by being a bit vulnerable, um, as far as is culturally relevant, I think is a good place to start and see where it takes you. Maybe, so breaking down this myth of the perfect CEO with all the answers, the infallible CEO. Yes, because ultimately the CEO's real job, in my view, if you want an agile organization, is to build leadership across the organization at all levels. That means people acting like grown-ups, sharing information, being responsible and proactive and making things happen. So if the CEO acts as the only brain and the only director of what happens, you're never going to get shared leadership happening. So it's about making space for others to flourish as well. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Linda. Um, I really, really enjoyed this talk. There was a wealth of information there and advice. And I just encourage everybody to um, buy your book, to read it, because it's it's the same, uh, but on 250-odd pages. <laughs> so really well worth the read. So I appreciate it very much, you coming on the, on the podcast. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. And uh, thanks again. All the best.